Uh, Father, we just come before you uh, to hear your words, to learn about you, uh, to know you deeper, to culminate in worship and communion with you by the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Teach us today, Lord. Instruct us. Give us wisdom through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And so, I didn't do an outline today. I don't think I know, I don't normally do outlines. Uh, So create your own. All you got is a title. You know, sometimes when you get up here and talk, it's, uh, you kind of critique other people's ways of speaking in and, and some arbitrary way. And I'm always like, why do people get up here and just tell them what the title is? What is this, a, a lecture? This is what we're doing today. And so the title today is The Simplistic Church. And so that's probably, a, something's already come up into your mind into what we're going to discuss today. And that's either more right or, or more wrong. And I guess you'll find out. Uh, so what do I mean by the simplistic church? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about divine simplicity. Uh, so does anybody, raise your, raise your hand, shout it out if you know what divine simplicity is. It's an attribute of God. What does it mean? Sydney. Yeah. Uh, for the live stream, if you guys can't hear, probably not. Uh, that all of God's attributes are intertwined into one being, that they're not separate. Uh, it's, in his, it's in his essence. And so we're going to look today at divine simplicity. And oftentimes that is when we talk about different theologies or attributes, we tend to think of like it's very heady and abstract. And this is one that is often spoken of in that ways. And I even read mar- multiple articles uh, from great Reformed pastors and um, and even Matthew Barrett, uh, who would have been about two years ago, two or three years ago, we had his um, uh, None Greater, his book. Yeah, that's what that word is called, that book. Uh, None Greater, um, uh, which is all in the attributes of God and God not being domesticated. Uh, even read a very good article about him, and it's all, but it's all very like heady. What do we do with all this like heady knowledge of these attributes of God? Well, we'll get to that later, but let's first talk about divine simplicity. You can't shortcut it. You can't get to what we ought to do if you don't know what it is that uh, is in the heart of God or his attributes. So yeah, divine simplicity is, is uh, simply, it's actually very complex, uh, that God is not made up of parts. He is all that he is. He contains uh, all of his attributes come, all of his attributes come out of his essence. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, uh, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. And so we have uh, not just the numerical number one. Uh, we know that we assert in the, throughout the Nicene Creed and different uh, other church documents and, um, is that God is a trinity. So we have one God in three persons. And so we assert that, and it seems very simple, yet it's very deeply and complex. But we have here that the, in Deuteronomy, saying the Lord God is one. And that means more than just one in number. Uh, not, not meaning he's more than one in number, but the meaning of one and oneness here is more than just the numerical number one. You guys following with me? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, if you don't, just raise your hand and we'll deal with it. Uh, but more that he's one, he's, he's whole, he is complete. He is, uh, uh, later, 
you know, one of the names for Yahweh or for, for God is, is Yahweh, uh, is that I am who I am, as in he is all that he is. He has ever been, there is no separation in him. And so that does get a little confusing uh, when you think about that with the Trinity, but again, we'll get to that. Um, and so another way to put it is that God does not possess these qualities. God does not have the attribute of love. He is love. And so if we say that he possesses it, that means it's outside of him, but it's in his essence. And so some of these are very hard to think about, especially when we get to the attributes of God, um, is because God has to condescend to us even to communicate. So all of the Bible is anthropological, meaning that he has to speak in a humanly way, right? If he doesn't communicate to us in a humanly way, we couldn't understand it. We would just be like, oh, it thundered. <laughs> or uh, or it, would, it would be inco, uh, incohesive, we would, incoherent. We wouldn't be able to understand it. And so we have attributes like uh, God is wisdom, Colossians 2.3. Uh, speaking of Christ, who has uh, hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right, and Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It's because he, pos- he doesn't possess it, because he is knowledge. All the depths and, and the riches that you could ever get out of wisdom come from him. Not that you can just find a bunch of treasures of wisdom in him, but that all of wisdom comes from him because he possesses and he has uh, all of it, but not in any humanly way, in, in a divine way. And so. Divine simplicity uh, is not so much that it's didactic in Scripture. We're not going to go to any particular Bible verse to say that God is simplistic in his essence or in his ontology, uh, in his being. There's no Bible verse that directly states to it. It's one of those levels of theology that's worth studying that goes like a level. You have to think about it for like five minutes and then come to a conclusion. Right? We do have... Uh, like a couple of those verses that I stated that lead us there. Um, but, but no, I wouldn't say there's any didactic. It's a logical conclusion of the uh, totality of Scripture. So if God were made up of parts, or if his attributes were separate from his essence or his being, um, he would be dependent on them, uh, thus making his parts ontologically prior to himself. And that's just meaning that uh, all of that, those words... Uh, just mean that if his attributes were separate and, and not part of his essence, then he would be relying on them. And so that's a little hard to think about because uh, we all experience love, right? But in your essence, you don't have love. And so we have to communi- continually, in a human way, go outside of our ontology, outside of our being, to experience these attributes. And so it's sometimes... And so we're going to get into, like, why the heck are we even talking about this? Because does it make any sense, or why do we do it? Uh, is because it's part of who God is. And when we study him, uh, we're going to become like him. And so um, he's not dependent on his attributes. His attributes are who he is. They're in his nature. He can't help but not be what his attributes are. And so the Westminster Divines uh, said it as such, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, uh, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. And then they go on to list uh, about 15 
uh, different attributes. And so uh, this is a doctrine of God that started back, uh, or that was, has always been throughout the church. It wasn't just uh, the, those in the Westminster Confession who wrote that in, in the 15th to the 1600s. Um, uh, Augustine said that there is no difference between what uh, divine, or he um, defined simplicity, God's simplicity, as there is no difference between what it is or what he is and what it has or what he has. Um, and so the best way to describe God's simplicity is by what he is not. And so a lot of times when you uh, study scripture or you you will read certain passages. God even uses this language to say, I am not like these gods. Boom. And labels some things. I am not like so-and-so. Uh, in the plagues of, of Egypt, uh, God was essentially saying, I am not like your sun god. I'm going to blot out the sun. I am not like this god. I'm going to do this. I'm in control. Right? It was a, uh, a miraculous way of saying, I'm not like these other gods. Right? So he's describing what he is not. And so Augustine uses an example of a cup filled with liquid. Right? And so that is a vessel with a liquid. And let's just imagine it's, uh, it's a nice wine, it's a Bordeaux, and it's got uh, flavor, you can taste the flavor, it has a body, has a temperature, a viscosity, a color. Right? All of those attributes of what it is, is descriptive of it, but it's not, but wine, the essence of wine, does not have those things, right? So just think, God's not like that. <laughs> and so use that analogy. And so think of all those things about how things are, and then just say, God's not like that. That's not who God is. Uh, he doesn't, he isn't, uh, his attributes aren't descriptive of who he is. His attributes are who he is, right? And so... Um, so why does that come into a little bit of importance? Is Well, just because God is showing mercy, patience, and long-suffering does not mean that his justice or wrath is depleted in any way, in every situation, throughout all of time. Now, God may choose to show his mercy, or we might see that, or his justice, in certain uh, times, but it doesn't mean that uh, like if he shows mercy, that justice is depleted. And we'll uh, get into that. So how are we to think about God in a simplistic way? And so this seems very complex, <laughs> right? Uh, we are finite creatures incapable of comprehending the infinite. So I do think it's a little ironic that in uh, describing God's ontology and characteristic of his simplicity, it's about as complex as it gets. Uh, go figure. And so, we all know those Christians that, that uh, focus or think about God's love. God's all about love. We think about his love. I love love. I love thinking about God's love. So lovely, right? Uh, we all know those Christians who, uh, who think about God's justice, uh, who are all about God's justice, and justice has to be served. And I like justice. That would be just. Uh, but what do we do with this, Right? So, uh, let's consider two things. Actually, I said on my notes, it's three things. Um, the simplicity of God protects us uh, in orthodoxy or right belief. And so, this is all just heady. We're just thinking about who God is. And 
I know everyone's in their seats waiting like, okay, when do we get to, what do I do about this? Uh, staying in there. We're almost there. Uh, right? But it protects us. It actually, uh, this, what we understand through Scripture, it protects us in, a, in right belief. And not just in if you, uh, if you believe and you understand divine simplicity, then you're an orthodox faith and you're safe. And as long as you adhere to that, then you're good. No, that's, that's probably true. Uh, there was uh, uh, tons of theologians throughout the ages, even Augustine said if you uh, leave divine simplicity, you're stepping out of orthodoxy and you're a heretic, uh, which would be, I guess, true. Uh, but it protects you in orthodoxy in, in every other way after that. And we're going to look at that. So without the divine simplicity... Uh, it would not be a long jump to say that Jesus displays the mercy of God where the Father displays the wrath of God and the Holy Spirit displays some other attribute, maybe wisdom or whatever we choose, right? It's not a long jump after that to start separating the persons of God from the essence of God, right? Uh, uh, Jesus sure did show a lot of mercy. He died on the cross for our sins. We're redeemed by him. He intercedes for us. Uh, that's pretty merciful, right? Uh, and so we, it, it's not a long jump to, those are all true statements, but then we start negating that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity and is perfectly wrathful. In his essence, essence he contains justice and wrath. And so that tends to uh, lead us towards a way of thought that is either dualistic or... Uh, maybe uh, Mrs. Brown will know. I'm just looking at Deanna and Mrs. Brown. What's the heresy where God is separate in parts? Marcionism, maybe? What is it? Say it again, Sydney. Partialism. Partialism. Yeah, there was like a, they always attribute someone's name to it, which is kind of funny throughout history that uh, let's remember these heresies by who believed them. It'd be like if, uh, like, Leopoldism would be like, you gotta, and you pick you pick whichever heresy it is, uh, but it might have been I forget if it was Marcion, Marcionism or, but partialism is that you start separating God's divine attributes apart from His essence, and so you it's not a far leap from there to just focus on Christ's mercy, or just focus on uh, the Father's wrath. Those are ones that are commonly, very commonly. Uh, throughout all of church history, fallen into, right? But, but Jesus Christ said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so, is the Son the Father? No. <laughs> Good. Uh, so there is a personal difference. There is an economic difference, but there's no ontological difference. He's not saying, I am the Father. He's saying the Father and I are separate, but we're one, right? There is an ontological, there is no ontological difference. Um, so Jesus in his essence is no less wrathful than the Father uh, or the Spirit. Uh, the Father is no less loving, the Spirit is no less wise. And so, you know, without divine simplicity, we tend to assign certain attributes to certain persons of the Trinity, uh, which lead us then to at least a less than biblical view, right? So we inevitably float towards uh, certain attributes or certain things towards 
uh, maybe God as a whole, uh, or the persons of the Trinity, right? Uh, but the Bible purports that all three persons of the Trinity are of the exact same essence. And so, uh, thinking in simplicity, simplistic terms or about God's simplicity keeps us on the path of orthodoxy, of thinking and reading Scripture rightly, which leads us to the second one, which is the simplicity of God helps us to read Scripture correctly. And so, um, so if we divide God up into parts, uh, it's easy, as we were talking about, to separate him into attributes. And so uh, here in this part of the Bible, we have mercy. Here in this, We're going to talk a lot about mercy and justice because those are the most common ones, pitfalls that we fall into. Uh, and this part talks about justice, and this part talks about wisdom. Uh, here we have like God showing his power, uh, and so on. And so if we can think in terms and, and do the rigorous work of reading Scripture with God's simplicity in mind, I think it'll uh, help us to understand Scripture better and to understand uh, God better. So here's an example. This is a question and answer format, so you guys can talk. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, we see one of the first acts that uh, God anoints Saul as king. What's the first act? What is Saul going to do? Does anybody remember? Take out the Malachites. Good job, Sidney. Uh, he's going to take out the Malachites. Hey, Israel, you've come into the promised land a long time ago. Uh, you wanted a king. Fine, I'll give you one. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to install one. And the first thing we're going to do now that you have a king is I'm going to send him, and you guys are going to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And it directly says that you're going to kill men, women, children, and babies. Wow, God's so wrathful. That is justice. He is pouring out his wrath, right? Yes, that is actually true. These aren't true questions. Uh, but, but then, and so in that, it's easy to focus on God's wrath, right? We're not saying it's not easy. That is easy. And that's a major, major portion uh, and highlight of that scripture. Uh, but God prophesied that and spoke about that 400 years prior. And so we read these accounts in scripture, and the first thing that is highlighted to us comes to our mind, but God was long-suffering and patient and merciful for 400 years to the Amalekites. So... How many, how many of us read scripture and read that story and was like, wow, God's so merciful. <laughs> He's so patient. Wow, he has been so kind to them for 400 years, right? What did God declare uh, uh, in, in the garden to Adam if you eat the fruit? You will surely die. And we have a tendency to jump in to say, well, Adam died spiritually. Well, probably that's true. I think so, yeah. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, if you eat this, you're going to be separated from me and you're going to die spiritually and, you know, eventually you're going to grow old and die. He said, when you eat of it, you're going to die. Justice will be served and I will kill you. You are breaking the law. But what did God do? He let them live, right? Uh, for about like 700 years or something. I forget how old. How old was Adam? 939. 939. Thank you, John Luke. It's amazing when people like Sydney and, and John Luke can throw out Bible facts like, I, I got I to read it and I got to Google and, and all these things, but you guys just have it on hand. That is wonderful. Uh, 
right? And so we, the things that are highlighted in Scripture are highlighted for a reason, but we're called to think in God's simplicity as we read it in that his other attributes are not negated or not shown just because he displays one, right? Uh, that's why we have um, a penal substitutionary atonement, right? That's another theological term. But it just means that in place of us, in place of the penalty for sin and death and eternal death that we deserve, God has poured out that wrath on his son Jesus Christ as a substitution in place of us, right? And so in that, uh, I think that's the, for me, that's the most easiest one is to show the display of God's justice and mercy at the same time, mercy to us, but justice and wrath poured out on Christ in our place, right? And so, um, so in that, with the Amalekites, God was pouring out justice. The Amalekites, as Israel was walking through the desert and God showed powerful signs of salvation, the Amalekites were like, hey, let's go kill those people. Let's go stop them. Uh, let's go make war with them. And that's the judgment and that's the justice that was rendered to them. There's no sign of Israel uh, provoking them, right? But God was merciful for 400 years. He was long-suffering. He wasn't quick to pour out his, his wrath and anger. He gave them time to repent, gave them time to, to, uh, uh, for some to join Israel, as it happens in some parts in Scripture. And so, um, and so when we think in terms of God's divine simplicity, it protects us not just in orthodoxy, but in how to read scripture, right? It protects that. And so what you've all been waiting for, I presume, is the simplicity of God leads us in orthopraxy or, or right practice. And so that's the why does this matter? When we study these things and these attributes of God easily, like love's an easy one, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And so we are to be loving, and that says it very didactically in scripture that if you don't love your brothers, you don't love God. And okay, I get that one. I know what I'm supposed to do with that attribute, right? It tells me pretty clearly. But what am I supposed to do with divine simplicity? And so uh, with that, I'll tell you what we ought not to do, right? And so uh, as an example, we tend uh, not to pray or worship when we don't feel like it, right? Does, it, does everybody kind of agree? That's part of human experience, uh, Right? I tend to not forgive people when I don't want to. <laughs> right? I tend to not pray when I don't want to. <laughs> I tend to not do anything when I don't want to. Uh, I tend to not do the dishes when I don't want to. And Noel tells me otherwise. And I tend to do them. Uh, right? But, uh, but we all know that's not how it ought to be. Right? And so uh, I don't just mean about like when we pray... I'm talking about how we pray. And so that goes into this, uh, this complex way of thinking of, of a being a whole or being, um, being complete, right? It goes into how we live, and we are supposed to live whole, complete uh, lives. And so we're called to pray, right? And so some of us then develop disciplines of prayer that is more biblical, that I pray when I don't feel like it. Well, that's good, but the Bible teaches us how to pray, teaches us everything about prayer, 
everything we need to know. Uh, there's not anything about prayer that we don't have in Scripture. And so we, as simple, uh, simple using the term as dumb, as dumb human beings, don't think in simplistic ways, meaning whole ways. And so we pray that God would do something for our given situation, which we ought to pray. We pray for uh, various things as we're led. But uh, the Psalms speak otherwise of, or, or more, right? Um, we have got Psalms or prayers or songs uh, that say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scriptures lead us in this way of thinking that the psalmist uh, is praying when he feels forsaken by the God that he is praying to. <laughs> right? I don't think I'm very good at that. Uh, it usually takes like maybe three, four days a week, a year or two, for me to finally come around and be like, God, yeah, I've really been avoiding you. <laughs> Uh, I feel like you are far from me, right? But those are called psalms of lament. And we are called as Christians to have this holistic way of thinking about the idea of prayer. We don't just pray uh, for the good things. We don't just pray for things that we think we want to. We ought to pray all the time. Uh, there are the imprecatory psalms. Uh, when's the last time uh, you prayed that the uh, Supreme Court justices or anybody in governmental officials who are dealing out unrighteousness would have their babies crushed on rocks. Uh, that's a little harder one, right? Uh, right? That's what that's in the Psalms. Uh, we'll talk about imprecatory Psalms later. I'm just saying that there are, there are imprecatory Psalms. Psalms of, and prayers of judgment against, uh, against people, against enemies. Um, real people. And there's a way that the church ought to pray. But are we well-versed in that? Do we normally think about that? We think in uh, less complex, less holistic ways. We pray what we want to pray. Psalm 6.3 is another psalm, psalm of lament. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? He's saying, how long do I have to wait before you come, before you rescue me, uh, before I hear from you? Right? He's praying to the God who he feels far from. We don't normally uh, tend to do that. And so uh, when we negate God's simplicity, we project the same thinking into, into our lives. Um, here's another example. Uh, and so Jesus is the mercy of God. Jesus didn't have any wrath or justice, so to speak, so neither will I. Uh, so then we pick and choose from there. So wrath is not mercy, True. Thank you. Good. Uh, anger leads to wrath. Yes. True. I, sounds, like my, sounds like a good portion of my life. Uh, therefore, anger is bad. No. No. Uh, good. So some of you might be thinking, what? Anger is not bad? That's making me angry. So the, scripture, the scriptures speak otherwise. Ephesians 4, 6. Be angry and do not sin. Take that command in two parts. Be angry. Do not sin. Right? This side of the pews. Be angry. 
Everybody over here, this side, do not sin, right? They're both commands from the Lord. And so we get this kind of muddled in our way of thinking when we pick and choose and think in God in separate or parts of him displaying attributes and negating others, we start to pick and choose from there about uh, what attributes we will display. And so what do we do, therefore, that anger is bad? We suppress it. So we teach ourselves that when I'm angry, anger is bad, so I ought to just suppress it. And that actually negates the grace of God. And so why is that? Um, you don't hear too many sermons about how you ought to be angry, right? Uh, well, uh, you ought to be angry about a lot right now, if you ask me. Uh, you ought to be angry when someone steals from you. You ought to be angry when the government steals from you. You ought to be angry when 3,000 babies a day are murdered through abortion. You ought to be angry um, when justice and inequality is, is dealt out on a national level right? According to God's justice and God's equality. You ought to be angry when you habitually sin over and over. Those are things you should be angry about. If you have an anger problem, you should be angry about that, right? But in all those cases, you ought not to sin. So what do you do with that? Well, it's part of life. You'll figure it out. God will show you. And so fits of rage uh, is a sign of walking in the flesh, right? So does the anger look like fits of rage? No, that's part of not sinning, right? Galatians 5. Uh, it doesn't mean that anger doesn't happen. Anger is an attribute of God. Uh, that's part of who he is. Anger doesn't come from uh, some other place in the universe besides him. And so... Instead of, uh, of being angry we, we, um, and having to deal with that anger before God, repent of any involvement or participation we had uh, and forgive those who sinned against us, we just suppress our anger and we try to keep it under control, right? It, so when we negate these, uh, the attributes of God and pick which ones are good or bad or which ones he's displaying, we project that into our own lives and then we say things like anger is bad, so the grace of God would cause me to do something or deal with it or forgive somebody or repent uh, or walk in the light. We suppress it and we negate the grace of God because we came up with some idea that anger is bad, right? Uh, but that's just one example. This isn't about anger. Um, discipline is another one. Uh, I have a problem with discipline. I read our uh, book, um, Richard S. Taylor's The Disciplined Life, every year, and I try to read it between Christmas and January, and for 2021, I got done in July, so I was a little off, a little undisciplined, uh, but I'm making progress, and we're on January 16th, and I'm about three quarters of the way through, so I might only be a month behind. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but we tend to think the same way as an example about discipline. And so in scripture, or what it means to be a disciplined person or have disciplined character, means more than just I was able to um, do certain things. Uh, sorry, without, I guess maybe for me it's like I could work long hours for a couple weeks to get a job done. Is that a type of discipline? Sure, but is that disciplined character? 
No, because maybe if I just was disciplined before, I wouldn't have to work for uh, a week really hard to get it done, right? And so that's negating uh, the totality of being a disciplined person and substituting what I thought was discipline, which was actually not discipline, right? Do you guys see how when we start doing that, it actually takes us farther away from what the truth is? And so we have to think in, in those simplistic terms or those holistic terms uh, and how the scriptures describe it. And so the simplistic church. Now we get to what I mean by the simplistic church. So Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so particularly in Ephesians Paul was talking um, about love uh, and how we ought to sacrifice and lay down our lives. But I'm taking this in a general sense of saying, in all ways, we're supposed to be imitators of God uh, as his children. And so there is a creator, um, creator-creation distinction. We can't, uh, we can't perfectly mirror all of God's attributes. God is omniscient. I can't be omniscient. Neither can you just in case you're wondering. It's not just a me problem. It's a you problem. But we can have knowledge. So we can reflect some of that, but we can't do it in whole or even close to whole. Um, So in simplicity, what I mean is that the church is called to a variety of things and cannot be separated. Just as we as as Christians individually are called to uh, be whole, complete beings, whole, godly people, not just in certain aspects, uh, but in the whole, so is the church. Uh, All churches are called to be the solution, the pillar of truth, ambassadors of Christ, and ministers of reconciliation. Uh, But we have, uh, in the same way, that some churches, we pick uh, what solutions we're going to solve, what truths we're going to focus on, who's going to be the ambassadors, and what particular areas to reconcile. Now, we can't be, do everything every time, right? So there is a level of wisdom of picking, well, there's a problem uh, in this uh, geographic denomination or area, and we can reconcile there. But the church as a whole is called to do it all in every area of life. Uh, the church is the body of Christ, the army of God, and his family, Yet we tend to emphasize giftingness over spiritual warfare or evangelism over inclusion. But we have to think in the attributes of the church is what it's called to be in being the whole thing or the big picture. We can't negate one for the other. That's why when it says that we're the body of Christ, we have different areas and giftings, we have to all work in unison to even think about attempting something as grand as what the church is called to do. And so... That's every church's calling, and that is specifically our church's calling. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, uh, Paul says that when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And in context, he's saying that all of the enemies of Christ, all the areas that are not submitted to Christ's lordship on the earth will be submitted to Christ's lordship. And so if you see an area in the world or you see an area in your life or in your family uh, that's not submitted to the lordship of Christ, that's where we're, you should work on. That's what we're called to. Oh, okay, so to bring all things, uh, to bring all things uh, in all things, in all areas into subjection to Christ. So it's easy for us as a church 
to focus on one area, or we're going to be the church that does this. Uh, we even know of churches who market themselves just as churches that evangelize, or churches that serve the poor, or churches that do counseling. Um, and that just might mean a, that might be an outside perception that I'm projecting on them. But I think we have a way of thinking that funnels us into one specific area or ministry or way of life. Uh, but we're not called to that. We're, that's a niche way of marketing. We're called to be uh, all, all in all for God in all areas of life. And so, you know, there's churches that we do community well, we do theology right, right? And so it goes on. And so the way what, why I wanted to talk about this morning about God's divine simplicity is because that's part of our mission as a church to reconcile all things to the lordship of Christ. The economy, education, government. That's a hard one. That might take some more time. Discipline, worship, how we worship. Uh, anything you can think of is going to come under the lordship of Christ and should. And so Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so, currently in time, God is working on restoring all things. That's not limited. It's not limited to one particular area. Uh, practically speaking, we might have to focus on one area more than another, or just as sometimes God's attributes are highlighted more in some areas than in other, but not negated, we are called to the same thing uh, in missions and in life, right? It would, it would not benefit us very well if we were a very evangelistic church, but didn't do community well. We would be good at one thing, but we'd negate another. And so that, takes a, that is a very slow, long process to that level of, of maturing, um, and, but, but this is how, how we ought to think. That's the primary vision for our church, and we need to be thinking in those terms. And so um, soon, I think we have it slated for the middle of February, I don't remember an exact date because it's not set in stone, is we're going to have our annual church-wide uh, vision casting uh, meeting, which we haven't had in a couple of years, and kind of talk about some things. Uh, I realized a few weeks ago when I was speaking that almost nobody knows about what's going on in India, what we're doing in India, uh, as far as GCF goes. But, you know, we currently have uh, three to four families who are actively planning on moving over here to be part of our church. They want to be here. And that's pretty spectacular. Uh, uh, because they want to get trained, they want to get equipped, and be part of a church plant. But we don't talk about that very openly, or our plans, or how we're going to do that, or how you can be involved. We need uh, a team of people to do things, and we need people to get ready, and we need people to do, be faithful in stuff here now. And so um, the whole idea of this morning and talking about God's divine simplicity is to hopefully we start to process things and think about this way in our, in our own lives and our families and how we operate in a church and start to identify 
areas and attributes in how we read scripture and how we look at God and how that filters down to how we operate as a church. And so to, to keep those things in mind and, and fresh is always good, and, but it goes into what we're doing in the future. It goes into how we're going to get equipped, uh, how we're going to uh, uh, continue the, the reign of our Lord into, into the earth that we're placed in. And so uh, just take those things and, and think about them and do more study, uh, read good books about God's divine simplicity. And most authors won't filter that down into how it gets into your life, but hopefully I've given you enough tools to do that. Uh, and hopefully you get on board with a vision of, of being a church, a community of families, of people who are set on restoring all things and looking at areas that we could take steps and growth in. Amen. Amen. So let me close and, uh, in prayer. Uh, Father, we come to you that you would uh, reign here through your son Jesus Christ and pour out your spirit, uh, that you would teach us, that you would lead us and guide us and equip us by your grace, by your mercy, uh, to be your, your reconciling army, family, um, uh, temple and all the other things you say that the church is. Uh, give us a mindset to think in terms of your divine simplicity to see you more clearly in scripture to reveal your son to us and whom we pray through. Amen.